Welcome back to Coaches on the Beach, and today we have Dave Palm joining us. Dave is competing member of the AVP, as well as the owner of PCA Beach Volleyball Club that recently expanded to two different locations in Florida. Most recently, Dave competed in a couple AVP Gold Series events, one out in Manhattan Beach in California, and then the other one in Atlanta. Dave, it's great to have you on. Yeah, excited to be here amongst all the other previous guests that uh, are all current college coaches. So definitely a pleasure to be in that same realm or considered someone in that realm. Dave, uh, thanks for coming on. And it's great, you know, getting to chat with you, I guess, in this forum. We've seen you on the beach for a couple of years and watched PCA grow. Uh, how did you get into volleyball and, and get into starting your club and playing on the AVP? Ooh, uh well, to make it as smooth as possible um, for the listeners, I took the unconventional route in the sense of typically for the guys game, you see guys would play a junior club, go to beach, play college for four years. Maybe if they're strong enough, go overseas, play that for a couple of years, and then make the decision to switch over to beach. I kind of went all, all or nothing route when I was about 18 years old. It was a decision, all right get some loans, go in debt, go to college, get a degree, or use my youth, right, in a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to really sacrifice myself to train for the next four, five, six years and make something out of it. And it was a tough decision because, you know, obviously mom is like, no, you got to go to college, you got to do this. And mom was like, no, this is my life, but obviously a little bit nicer because it's mom. And um, took the decision to go with beach volleyball. So I was, you know, grew up in Miami and then moved up to – the Pompano area and then pretty much started training and it was a little bit different for me in the sense of it's tough because when players ask me how do I become to that level how do I get there and I always talk about the mental side of it right because anybody can practice four or five times a week anybody can can you know do all the right things but it's the mental state where for me I was fortunate and unfortunate enough where it was like a do or die situation, literally do or die in the sense of, you know, you're starting off the first few years, you're putting in skill work and I'm working coaching jobs at night, not paying much, right? Barely getting by my rent. And then any local tournaments, you're counting pennies and you're going to the grocery store being limited what you can buy because you know, Hey, if I don't win next weekend, I'm putting up a hundred, 200 bucks to compete food. And if I don't get it to the finals and get my money back, I'm in the hole. Right. So, it's a very tough situation where I'm kind of fortunate I kind of went through because a lot of guys or a lot of people, by the time they get to the beach side, they've already have a job lined up, right? They went to college, have their degree. And for me, it was kind of like everything was heightened a little bit more because I knew it was, if I don't do this, I cannot eat for the week. I cannot pay my rent for the week. And um, eventually, you know, started playing and started breaking the ice, had my losses, just like everyone does have their losses. I call it paying your dues, right? Um, giving your 10% to church has to speak so you can get back tenfold. And um, kept on with it. There were shaky moments where I was two and a half years in and I was looking results and I wanted to quit. And I'm so glad I decided not to. And the people around me were a group, good group of people and telling me the potential that I had. And I stuck with it. And, you know, here we are 13, 14 years later, still playing um, the sport that I love and in a different position where I've been able to create something out of nothing in the sense of a, a beach volleyball club where that's where the generations are to come. So um, it's kind of 
answer your question, yeah, it was something where I took a gamble, had a dream, right? I remember watching, uh, this is where I started in South Beach, 2008, the AVP came to South Beach. Um, and recently they came this past year as well, which was great. So it's kind of like a full circle thing. But about 13 years ago, they came back to South Beach. I saw the dream team, Misty May, Kerry Walsh, the dream team, Phil Dahlhauser, Todd Rogers. And I just sat there on stadium court all the way to top, top feature. And I watched them play back to back. And I said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And funny enough, last year in Tavares was the first time I ever played Phil just because the way the brackets line up. So it was like a, a full circle thing. I was like, wow, I was watching this guy, the fact that he's still playing. Um, and I was able to <laughs> still playing, right, and being dominant, hence the GOAT. And then uh, 13 years later, was able to be on that same court or something. I personally watched myself to be able to go, wow, I'm in that other position. In the driver's seat as to speak. And it was surreal. It was surreal. But, um, but yeah, that was kind of my journey. It was uh, one I would not encourage <laughs> um, you know, I would not encourage because I, I did not have a lot of support. Um, so it was kind of like, and, and it wasn't something my mom said, Hey, you're on your own. It was just something like, Hey, you made this decision. You got to be a man and you got to stick with this decision. So it was always like a personal thing where I was like, okay, I'm not going to rely on her. I'm not going to rely on every once in a while. Mom, like, Hey, you okay? You okay? <laughs> and every time I would see her on the weekend, she would see like, Hey, you're going 20 bucks, you know, you know, what we'll do, right? So just to make sure I'm alive and checking in on me. But, uh, there were some rough moments with the boys, you know, jacking it up in houses, volleyball house, you know, uh, traveling, turning, sleeping on floors, couches. One time was a closet, right? You did what you had to do just uh, to get by and travel. So, so I'm fortunate enough I got to experience that journey, but I'm also fortunate enough where I can now coach girls to this day and help them avoid all of that and potentially even get scholarship opportunities, right? That's that's the that's a new thing in town. Yeah, pushing them to have a better life kind of than what you felt like you had. Uh, did you ever live in the in the Dana Camacho house? Were you uh... – were, were you ever down there in that that squad? I was not. In, I was not in the Dana Camacho house. But I'll tell you what. A lot of people don't know this, and I don't know if he's going to hear this. You would never guess this from Dana Camacho, but he is a neat freak. I am talking about. I've traveled with him for two or three tournaments, and the first time I, I, I ignored it. The second time, I just started noticing sequences. I was like, this can't be. So I would go to the bathroom that we would share when we travel. And I would move a little shampoo bottle just a little bit to the right and then come back hours later and it's back to the same spot. I'm talking about the cleansiest guy where we would have a three-day tournament, play the first day. He would come back, his dirty clothes, he would fold it and then put it in a pile, right, so he can have it organized when he leaves the hotel. And uh, you would never guess it, but I guess that that's a testament to his, um, you know, discipline to detail when he's playing. That guy has great vision great feel of the game so i mean it makes sense when you when you put it together yeah this is the same guy that we're talking about we've seen play a dig the beach with a cigarette in his mouth so i mean he is uh he's quite the character and i mean he's known for the sky ball right there's there's a little discrepancy about who who started the sky ball first whether dana taught dana might be the teacher yeah, did you uh, did you play with him at all outside of a couple of local tourneys, or did you ever run it back with him on the N- NVL? With uh, Dana or Adrian? Either, Adrian, yeah. <laughs> so actually, um, 
in 2018, I believe. No, sorry, 2017 was the last NBL. Then P4, T40 came around for one year. Did that. Um, that only lasted three events. So that was really fun. And in 2019, I was like, all right, you know, um, still figuring out the whole club thing, right? I just started club late 2018. I don't really count 2018. So I was figuring out like the club portion of it. And in 2019, I played a qualifier with Dana. And uh, we, I, I, I'll remember, I'll never forget our first round. We played these local guys pretty good. Started off, we won in three. That was a little shaky, right? I was like, okay. Second, we played Rocky and Dentler. He was feeling it. I'm talking about he was back to his old ways and just skyballing out over there at uh, Woolies, I think it was, where they have the two courts in Texas, right? So that's where they had part of the qualifier. So we, we, we played there. He was skyballing those small little two, two court. He was letting it rip. And uh, we beat them in two. Then third, we played Lindsay and Hamilton. Um, Daniel Lindsay, I believe he's coaching uh, Nuts and uh, Close right now. So, and um, we played them back in the day. We beat them in three as well. And then our last game, his legs just got a little gassed out. And uh, speaking to what you were saying earlier, uh, I'll tell you what. In the timeouts, he was drinking his two-liter Coke, a cigarette in the mouth, getting ready <laughs> in between timeouts. And people were like, doesn't that bother you? And I was like, man, I don't care if this guy does four or five cigarettes. If he sides out, I'm okay with it. But honestly, he wasn't conditioned. Um, Dana never practices. He's just a stud that way, right? He just has natural gifted talent. He never practices. He just goes to the beach, plays game, and says, hey, I'll play you guys two against one. And then he'll play a match two against one. And then he'll, on his timeouts, he'll start playing some backgammon and play like $1 games <laughs> with backgammon. And uh, and uh, he's just that good. And then, unfortunately, his legs just gave out. And uh, there were a couple of things I, I looking back, I could have done a little bit better. But, unfortunately, we lost. And I was around to get in. And, fortunately enough, we ran the numbers. If we would have qualified, we would have um, played Phil first game. And I wanted, I wanted that to happen so bad because I know Dana would have stepped in there to sky one, run his mouth against Phil just to, just to, you know, test him. Cause you know, Dana, Dana always wants to push the envelope. So, so that was pretty exciting. And then as far as Adrian, uh, fun fact, my first open tournament at 18, I played with Adrian in Fort Lauderdale and we won that tournament. Yeah. We were in the same training group before he went to Italy. So that was exciting. You're the, you're the South Florida man. Um, but you, you managed to yeah, get, well, uh, I guess you, you played obviously with those legends. You managed to get your first win with uh, a West coast guy, right? T talk to me about winning with Mike Playcheck on the NVL. How does Ooh. this come about? Oh. How does this partnership happen? How do you guys get there? So, man, so that, that's a, that's a great story. So the year before I played with Mike, Mike Playcheck was playing with Austin Rester and they were playing really smooth. Like, I'm talking about really smooth. So the year before that, he played with Austin Rusher. They made it to a lot of semifinals appearance. I was playing with Drew Mallon. And that year before that, we there were six events. We went to four finals, lost all four finals to my good buddy, but darn him, Josh Benstock. Um, he played with Sam Shatcher. Yeah, and they, they beat us every final we played in the four finals. And, um, you know, after that season... You know, I talked to Drew and I was like, hey, let's try something different. You know, we did well, but, and also I think he had an injury along with it and we were trying to see if he recovered. 
and uh, called up Mike because Austin couldn't play, and we played that first tournament together, and it was uh, it was smooth. It, I'm telling you, we went five and zero, and our our all the games were tough, but our final was really tough because we played uh, someone I played with this year and last year, Rafu, and uh, Matic in the final, and we were just we were smooth. We we just sided out very well. We just felt each other on the court, right? The strategy was very similar. I mean, he's a smart guy. As you can see he's coaching Andy and Miles um, on the ABP and World Tour. So he's a smart guy. He's very tactical. And I think I, I would say today I, I get a big portion of that as well because I see the game in a very tactical aspect. But it's almost like a Cinderella story where the first time we played together, it was smooth. And then we played a couple more after that. And then he had to step away for a little bit. I, I forgot what it was. And then that's where I picked up... Um, uh, Eric Zahn, RP, um, and then kind of then Mike took us. He played a couple with Jeff Samuels, and then I think that was his last year playing and playing the kids and everything. Yeah, I mean, you talk about that Panama City tournament um, where you guys took the dub, right? You got Skylar Dussel, Jeff Samuels in there. I think Piotr's playing at this time, right? He's full time NBL right now. Um, I mean, JM's coming on the scene. Yep. Yeah. Henderson, um, who else? Mike DePiro is probably running around at this on the same time. So, like fun fact, yeah, you, you had Steve Bratowski back in the day, right? And Mike DePiro. That was that was a tough team because you. I mean, if you you go back to history for volleyball nerds, right? They were very dominant in the ABP, right? Um, and then after you went under. They went to the NBL, right, and they took a little time off, but they were very dominant, so they knew each other. I actually, I, when Steve was on his way out and I was on my way in with the training group, I was I was training with Steve. Um, so I took it personal in the sense of like, ooh, he's a good blocker at practice. I got to be a better blocker. I got I to gotta do what he's doing and better, right? So I, I think I got a lot of that from him. And uh, even to this day, I remember Steve had one of the best high lines. He was just coming on the left side in the last second just go thumb up and it would just go right over the blocker smooth. Um, but you had guys like that, that were a lot of high IQ guys and they really made the game super intense, super, super competitive. But yeah, Steve and Mike at one point in Florida, I remember Rich Heil <clears throat> from East End, he put a bounty on them and he said, Hey, whoever beats this team, I'll give you an extra two grand. Cause for two years, if I remember correctly, they did not lose a match. If I remember locally in local tournaments, yeah, they're, they're pretty dominant in the Florida area for, for a long, long period. Um, you mentioned briefly, right, you, you wound up picking up the road dog. Tell, tell us a little bit about, about Zahn. What's it like? What was it like hanging out with him? What was it like traveling on the road? I mean, uh, is, he a, is he Dana Camacho-esque where he cleans up after himself or plastic bottles under the water, but under the bed? What are we talking about here? Oh, man, it's funny because um, I have uh, so many pictures. I don't know if you guys can use that later. So when I tell you this guy was a free spirit, life of the party, that is an understatement. Um, and and, and it, was, it was very interesting because everything that he did, he was all in. Like his mind was somewhere else. He, he wasn't distracted, whether it was practice, tournaments, hanging out with friends. Uh, traveling, having an adventure, right, with the boys, it would be so engulfed, so uh, just just so focused, and you got all of him, right? So every emotion that he was feeling, he would feel it, and whenever there was something that he didn't like or something was off, he, he would just say, hey, man, I'm not feeling it. 
I'm going to get out of here because he just <clears throat> didn't like the standard or didn't like the environment. But it was great because this is someone where, if I remember correctly, he was still in New Jersey at the time. He played one. He did okay. And we told him, like, hey, we got a training group in South Florida. And he did not hesitate, right? And he, uh, he packed his bags and went down. And it all started when I played, um, what's that tournament, uh, Pottstown Rumble with him. And it, it was crazy because he was younger than me by, like, uh, two or three years. And um, he, he said, hey, man, I want you to come play Pottstown. And I was like, really? And, and, and he's like, yeah, I'll pay for everything. And I was like, what? I was like, hmm, okay, that's a kind gesture. And he flew me out, got to Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And of course, his whole free spirit, I'm, I'm in, I'm waiting outside, right, for him to pick me up, small airport. And he's driving by, his, his body is halfway outside the window. His brother's body is halfway, they're honking the horn, they're like, the scam is here. The scam is here. We're here to scam everyone. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And like, just did not have a care in the world. And, um, you know, he was a great guy, fun to travel with. And, uh, we competed. We, we had some, so many matches. Uh, one in particular in Formosa. I remember we played Piotr and Skyler. So great team. They won numerous national, uh, championships. Right. And, um, we won the first set, and I remember we were down bad the second set, like down bad. And we came back and rallied like four to five points in a row to win this match to seal the deal. And that was like, that was bittersweet. That was bittersweet. And, you know, the the emotions that we felt because we experienced that together at practice was the big differentiating factor where I knew he was all in at practice. He knew I was all in at practice. So those small moments of pressure, as some people call it, um, we didn't feel that because we knew the expectations and the standards that we had for one another. So it was just a matter of us trusting each other, putting those pieces together. And I think that's huge um, in whatever level you're playing, especially a team sport, right? Where if, if I see the people next to me are all in, in those pressure situations, they don't exist because we're just going to go through it together. You talk about those pressure situations, and I, I think you had those a lot more than probably anyone else taking that leap of faith like you were talking about, skipping college, going straight into it, this is it, or I'm not making it. And I, you have an extremely good knowledge of everything you've done in the past, it seems, and I've heard you're a great storyteller as well. Um, so I just kind of want to throw it up in the air generally. What would you say has been the highlight of your career so far? Is it a match, travel, anything? Of my playing career? Is that what you're asking? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Highlight of my playing career. Oof, that's a, that's a great question. Um, on, honestly, okay, that's... So there's multiple ways I can go about it. I think the highlight of my playing career. So fun fact, um, and I'm going to throw the name out there because that's that's what it is. Fun fact, I was supposed to be destined to be an MLB player. And the reason why I said that I played volleyball, like, you know, how people go, oh, you grew up with uh, volleyball in your hand. Like you, you see those families, right? The little kids with the family. So I grew up with a ball and a bat in my hand. Um, just because my mom loved baseball, and um, I uh, I grew up with a, a 
pretty much a ball in my bat. So ever since I was three, I was playing baseball, baseball, travel ball, travel ball, right, in, a, in an association in Miami. And um, we were great. We went to Disney World, World Sports. We won the 11-year right tournament. Um, we were a club team before club teams even existed. And on my team, I have or I had one current MLB player and another one. I think he might be in AAA and kind of going back and forth between the MLB. And those people are Albo Moran. He was an outfielder. He was our outfielder, center fielder. And then Manny Machado, if you guys follow baseball. And, um, you know, he's playing right now. So uh, for the for the Padres, and um, we grew up together our entire lives. So for me, unfortunately, I broke my mom's heart. And uh, I said, I just don't like baseball anymore. And I'm talking about like, just literally, yeah, I got influenced with my, you know, with my friends in Miami growing up with parks and all that, right? Oh, I want to be with my friends, my friends. And she was like, look, this is what you want. I'm going to support it. So to kind of answer your question, I think the best moment in my career was 13 years later, where I had built a reputation, have built a standard, have built a skill level where I'm playing at a professional level. And I was able to not only financially afford bringing my mother traveling with me to these tournaments, but also having her um, see me perform. And, um, you know, it's, it's crazy how I worked full circle, just even though I don't want to hear it, you're, you're so trained zoning out people. You just can't help to zone out mom hearing you off to the side and hearing her. And it's almost a, a, an emotional feeling because for some reason you get flashbacks of when you were seven or eight hearing her, right, and uh, supporting you while you're playing baseball. And then, you know, you're a full adult now 20 years later and she's still the same person even though she's 20 years old, right? And that just goes to show you the power of mother, right? Um, so I would say that's definitely the highlight of my career because as i mentioned i don't have a big support system growing up it was just my mom and i right so you know no father figure to kind of show you the ropes nobody to go hey this is how you uh fix a car it's how you change your tire my mom kind of had to do that in a sense as much as she can working two jobs so for me it was really all or nothing and it was personal and then even though my athletes, if they hear me, they're going to obviously use against me. I always say don't compare, right, ever. But when I first started and transitioned to the professional tour, like qualifying for Jose Cuervos, right, qualifying for the Corona Light Wide Open, NBL, ABP, I would compare my success to Manny's success because I was like, that should have been me. And it took me a while to get over that, right, because I compared it, but I said, no, I'm supposed to be – where I am. This is where I'm supposed to be. Because if I would have been an MLB star, I wouldn't be able to help young athletes achieve what they're achieving because they have a busy schedule and they're such a high priority in the professional world that they don't have time or a lot of time to devote to create these relationships with people around them. And, you know, I'm not going to say I've saved lives, but I can definitely at least say like I've helped people in the volleyball world and, you know, maybe some, you know, advice to, I don't know, just be a better person, right? So once I got over that route, I would say that's what helped me win the championships. That was my big pump, and I believe every athlete has a big hump because I would just compare, and once I got done comparing, that's in 2015, 16, I started winning, 17 winning, and then come 2023, 
I was able to afford with, you know, everything going on, having my mom, right, to come be there by my side like she always was. So that was that was the highlight of my career. I can I can easily say that today, unless something crazy happens. So for sure. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough. I, I've been lucky enough to meet your mom last year in New Orleans and you got a great support system there. But I do want to tell you to be careful about talking about baseball in here because you're talking Collins language now. Um, he was a baseball player. Yeah, yeah. I uh, <clears throat> I was never going to be good. Uh, it sounds like you might have been, Dave. But uh, I did work in the baseball business for a little bit. Uh, $300 million, though. I mean, you don't need that much. It's not about money. No, no, no. Uh, I'm sure we could all – you could call Manny up and be like, hey, I do need a sponsor for the 2024 <laughs> season if you want to throw a few bucks my way. Um, but with right, all, exactly. With all that, right, I, you're a man of faith, right? How has – that kind of shaped your perspective when it comes to both your playing career, but also coaching and how you're, you're shaping, you know, your coaching voice. You know, like you said, I'm, I'm, I'm a man of faith, right? I, um, I truly believe, you know, Jesus Christ is my savior. Right. And it, it's, it's been a, uh, it's a, been a rough road as to speak because you know, even though I, I don't want to give it a sob story, but it's it's the reality of the situation, right? Where, uh, you know, the childhood was rough, right? Single mother, two jobs, that stepped away, you know, cheated on mom, all that stuff, right? Uh, there was a moment where I kind of like pushed him away, where I pushed uh, God away. I was like, why are you doing this? You know, I can't believe you. Um, and it, it was it was a rough patch where. I'll never forget Alex, that was his name, um, Alex Suarez from my high school. He was kind of the man, you know, wherever you are, Alex, I don't um, think you're involved in the volleyball world, but wherever you are, hopefully you're there. Um, he kind of brought me back into the light because um, I always believed in God, right? Um, and in high school, he invited me to a club one day and then he was like, hey, come to this club and I went to the club. And I slowly started finding my faith again, right? Um, you know, got baptized when I was in high school, when I, you know, accepted Jesus, right? And um, it was it was such a changing moment. And then there was another speed bump um, that, uh, you know, us three, we can sit down one day for lunch and I'll kind of share that, share that with you guys. I don't want to get too much into detail. There was another speed bump and that's when I was like, oh, you know, I can't believe it. And uh, again, pushed them away the second time, right? And uh, and then slowly but surely started finding my way back to him, right, with, with all the ups and downs. And I said, you know what? Life is tough. Uh, everybody's life is tough. I'm just going to give you everything and I'm going to trust you. And that's a big part of the trust, right? I'm going to trust you and give you my life. And I don't know where we're going. I don't know what I'm doing. But here you go. And then came the volleyball. Quitting baseball, breaking my mom's heart, came the financial burden came the risk of rolling the dice, not going to college, getting a college degree at all, doing something nobody was doing, uh, you know, the, the not having money for multiple years, starting a club out of nothing, uh, traveling to tournaments with, you know, one of my NBL championships. I remember seeing it before the first day of play, I had $500 in my bank account and going, I need to get to the semifinals to get like 2,500 bucks, right? Um, so going through all of that to today where I am very proud to say I'm glad I went through it and I'm glad 
I persevere through their side because my life is not over. There's still going to be a lot of milestones. But whenever an athlete comes up to me and she asks me these questions of faith, right, because I, I'm not someone that likes to shove it down someone's throat. But if an athlete sees how I pray before every match, right, how I give God thanks after every match, win or lose, right, um, and they ask me these questions or just a, a bystander, I will be more than happy to share my experiences because, you know, I, I, I'm kind of uh, in the mindset of I'm human, you're human. We all have tough lives, right? Nobody's perfect. And I've made some really bad mistakes and I'm sure the person across from me has as well, but let's look at the bright sides from all those tough situations. And for the athletes that do have that belief, right? Um, I, I, I give them my volleyball examples like, Hey, this is what happened to me when I was 21, 22, 23, right? It could be uh, relationships. It could be family situations. It could be volleyball. It's not working for me. I wanted to quit. And I prayed to God, why am I doing this? I, I, I devoted everything to volleyball. It's not working out. I'm not getting the results I wanted. And, you know, God has, I, I truly believe in my heart, God has a place for everyone and a purpose for everyone if you just come to him and trust him with your life, right? Because a lot of people, they'll pray, and that that's the great first step. But, you know, saying a couple words and trusting in your heart, those are two different things, right? Like when I see these young athletes trust me with their future volleyball, I take that personally. I, I lose sleep over that because I'm like, it, I'm trying to get her better, and I'm struggling with my coaching. How can I become a better coach to get her to where I need to? Sometimes that means calling other coaches. Sometimes that means, hey – we got to do a different style of coaching for you, right? Or we got to talk a little more. So for me, that's a big point in my life. And and, and thank you for asking. Because um, like I said, I'm not someone I would just, you know, be all in about like, oh, this is what I'm about. I typically just wait and sit back till someone asks or bring it up because I'm just, uh, I'm just a, a laid back person kind of uh, mindset. But um, I'm always, you know, for anybody listening, player, parent, um, or just a volleyball fan, I'm always someone that, you can reach out to me um, and um, and ask me anything. And if I have the answer, I will. And if I don't, um, you know, I'll just say I don't. Because one thing that, you know, looking back where it was tough, um, you know, with Zahn, the situation, right? We didn't have a lot of conversations about that. We spent a lot of time traveling. So, you know, I always think back, man, what if I would have just shared a little bit more? Right. Because we spent a lot of personal time. Right. What if what if I would have just said something like, hey, man, I can't I'm going to church. Right. Or, hey, man, I can't because I I got to spend, you know, my 20 minutes in the morning reading my Bible. If he would have been like, what do you mean by that? Right. Who knows if that would have changed. So for me, that's something I always carry with me. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely open to, to anybody. But I, I do take that with me when I coach the juniors. That's for sure. Oh. Out of curiosity, do you um, you spend any time with Avery Drost at all on on tour? Um, I know you guys have the the Zon connection, but also you know another guy who's strong in faith. Uh, I was just curious if that's ever if you guys have ever spent any time together. So right now, getting close to Avery is a little tough because he's with a goat right now, so he's spending a lot of time. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, we uh, we we talk a little bit. Um, obviously, he's been playing really well with Phil on um, the last couple of tournaments, right? So we'll talk a little bit. I, I know, uh, oh man, great guy. He, uh, in Fort Lauderdale, because it was like a, a full circle kind of thing where, you know, the AVP was back and uh, 
I asked, um, or I made a post and I said, Hey, we're going to do like a prayer circle before the first match in the tournament. Adrian showed up, right? That was huge. And he didn't have to play until like 12, but he showed up seven 30, had to play at like nine and he showed up and that was pretty awesome. So, um, we do talk from time to time. Right. Um, but he's a busy guy right now, right? Who knows? Maybe he might get Phil back into the Olympic run. Who knows? <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm sure the last thing Phil wants to do is leave his, uh, leave his kiddos behind. Uh, to go travel and play in some foreign country again for the 14th straight year or whatever he's on. You have quite a bit of not only volleyball experience, but life experience. And now you're running your club, you're expanding yeah. your club, and you get the chance that you've mentioned a couple times of coaching younger female athletes and helping them out through their journey and all that. I've talked to you about the mental side of the game and how you coach the mental side of the game. And I've taken a couple of those things and thrown them into our program here. What are some of the key aspects that you really put forth when you're coaching younger athletes or girls just starting beach volleyball? Uh, that's a good question. So um, I break it down into segments with age groups, right? Because uh, oh, I'm so fortunate. Enough. I love that girl. Her name is Aubrey. She's a little 10-year-old. And dad's like, hey, uh, we're done with indoor. We're going full beach. And I was like, wait a minute. How old your daughter's like 10. I was like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I love that. So that's that's something that fires me up. So we break it off into segments in the sense of we have a certain age group um, time frame where skills technique foundation skills technique just just memory memory muscle memory muscle memory repetition over and over so they have that base and that structure right and then once we start getting into the teen years right like anywhere depending on the athlete anywhere from 12 to 14 right now we start going okay let's start opening the mind i start picking their brain of how did you feel were you thinking was it blank space after these three points what did you ask yourself what did you how did you prepare for the future points after that? Um, and then now when we start getting to like 15 plus and these girls are in high school, right? They're a little bit more mature. Um, you know, I have my expectation for my athletes of if you are not thinking every single point, you are not finding a way to be as effective as possible. And it's not something where, you know, you can't be silent, but if you're not, at least remembering sequences of what the other team is doing or what you and your teammates are doing, it's hard to generate points when you really need to generate points, right? Um, so for us uh, at practices, uh, even though in college it's a little bit easier in tournaments, my girls are not allowed to go under the net at practices at all. It doesn't matter the drill they're not allowed. And the reason for that is when we compete and play games and they do side switches just like you would in college, right? The coaches are there, but obviously, you know, sometimes we do practices where it's like, hey, coaches, let them figure it out. They got to use that time to talk and walk with their partner and go, hey, the last three times we served her before the tag, she's been loving that high line. But let's wait till the score is 16 all and we'll pull that angle switch. Maybe you peel, maybe you block, depending on where her pass location is. Let's go from there. So it's something where I really push my older girls to go, two things need to happen. One, you need to keep small stats of what girls are doing to be successful and what they're doing that is hurting them substantially. And then for yourself, you got to keep small stats. It doesn't have to be accurate, like percentages or anything, just a rough number, right? On your side, hey, where are we siding out and what are they doing to kind of get points later on later in the game? We've got to be ready. Do we have a plan B for that, right? 
to something where there's constant dialogue between um, the older girls, just so they're not surprised because what I've witnessed over the many years of coaching that I didn't implement in the beginning of my coaching career was that mental aspect where I see a lot of girls kind of panic and freak out in pressure situations because I wasn't very disciplined on teaching them to really use their mind to the full capacity, right? So now when, let's say, you're playing a good team and they are on the same page where they're thinking just as much as you are, you're like, ooh, I see what she did there. Okay, so she's been saving that play for me. So now I have this and I can run it back because I know she's either going to go back to her original defense or she's going to run it again. And then you just come up with a different offensive system, whether it's a back or quick. You just disrupt them so they don't build into that rhythm. So for me, that mental aspect is massive. Massive, massive with my older girls, but we slowly integrate it um, as they get older. Yeah. Do you hear about that great story of uh, the professor, Todd, playing with Phil? And I, and I can't remember what, I think it was the Brazilians there playing in a match, and they're going back at maybe 14, 13 or something like that, and Todd goes, he's going to hit the cut shot here. Phil goes, all right, all right, sounds good. And so they run the play, right, and sure enough, Brazil hits a cut shot, and Todd doesn't dig it. And Phil goes, what the heck, dude? You you said this was coming. And he goes, I know. And I want him to know it's there. Because then, you know, they side out and then they side out back and forth. And all of a sudden, that, that 1919, Todd goes, cut shot's coming. Scoop, puts it away, right? And now you're up 2019 and you've just stolen a point. Now you're you're putting the match away. And it's it's just like that, right? Can you keep track of what do they think is open? What do they know? It's you know, we teach it at a very rudimentary level of like threes and fours, right? Hey, show angle, dive line, right? But can we go to the bigger cat and mouse game, right? Can we convince them to to shoot when they want to swing? Can we make things really uncomfortable? Um, how has, you know, vision impacted your game and what is kind of the the thing that you're looking for when you're, you're doing that reading up at the net? Especially when you got those big shades on. You used to wear the, you used to wear the sunglasses. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, your face. Yeah, so um, so that's a great question because um, the guys' game is a little bit different than the girls' game, especially the way the skill for both genders, right? The way the skill has evolved over the last couple of years, and the girls' game is not too far from it. But I would say back then, or not even back then, I would say um, you know around the 2000s all the way through the late you know 2015 16 i would say really turned especially after covid but i would say even around 2000 the game has changed where in those early 2000s mid 2000s it was a lot of basic defense look at defender go away from defender basic defense look at the defender go away they show early, look at the defender, go away. Now it's evolved to where you have bigger players stepping into the game, right? You have taller athletes covering more court, faster players with their training. And uh, you have players going, hey, I've been watching your film. I know what percentage you can and can't hit. So I'm just going to stand a little bit more this way, and I'm going to give it to you to see, like you were saying the story with Todd, right? And see if you hit it. Are you still stubborn with it? Are you going to hit it? Are you saving it up for the end? And I'm preparing for that alongside with, you know, guys are getting more physical. So now it's not just playing as a defender. You know, even myself, I'll have practices where it's like, hey, you have to hit towards the blocker side and use the hands, right? So for the guys, 
Um, you know, guys are getting so good playing that small ball against the blocker where you're forced to go, all right, I'm hitting it towards the blocker side and finding hands and just hitting high and high and deep. So you got in the guys game and the girls are not too far from that, but the guys game, especially, I think that's where the game has really failed. So as far as vision, you know, I've worked on um, both aspects, finding the defender, finding the blocker, but ultimately the way I teach it is if your timing is correct, you should be able to see both. If your timing is correct, you should be able to see the ball, um, the blocker, and the defender. If you're a little left, a little right, you're too early, you're going to lose one of the three sometimes too. And if you lose two of the three or one of the three, then you're a little bit too early, a little bit too far from the ball. And also depending what set you're running, but let's just say a, a regular up and down set, right, to, from the pin, right? Um, if you lose one of those objects while you're taking your approach, then you are probably mistiming the ball, right? Um, and something uh, that I use when I do private lessons, it's pretty great actually. I have my girls tuck in their shirt into their shorts, like really, really tight. And then I have them um, bite their t-shirt, the collar of their t-shirt. So I say, look, bite the collar the entire time. If your t-shirt gets untucked from your shorts, that means you're way too under the ball and you're looking straight up to the sky. So you are losing your vision. Right. Um, so that's something where I'll give you a little nugget, you know, whatever. I'm getting to the end of my career, so who cares? Um, I'm getting to the end of my career. I'm not a head bobber. I'm an eye looker. I don't bob a lot of guys and girls, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. They do a hard look. For me, I kind of like those as a blocker because I see where you're trying to hit, right? I do more of a lot of extreme eye look going up and down. Because for me, it's work where I can make a decision last second and they don't know if I'm looking at the blocker or the defender. So that kind of helps out tremendously. That was the old Sinjin strategy. They used to say Sinjin could be up in the air, hand on the ball, still looking at you the whole time, not even like, not even eyeing his hand making contact. So, uh, yeah, no, I mean, vision's king, right? I mean, who can't? You know, the way the game's being played, you watch them, Christian Sorum or Laura Ludwig, I mean, they're never stopped. They're in constant motion. Even April Ross was getting that way. Uh, it's it's definitely gotten to be such a faster game, and that's why you see the offense is speeding up. I mean, I don't think – you didn't play Andy and Miles this year at all on the AVP, did you? This year, Andy and Miles, no. But I played Miles with Paul last year and then Andy with Miles Evans last year as well. But, no, I, I'm not uh, – you know, I actually want to play them, but because yeah. I have a, I have a little strategy. I was actually talking with Dylan. Um, okay. I have a little a little strategy to stop the uh, the offensive aggressive jump set two ball, but also I would need to practice it with someone. That's also the downside. Not a lot of uh, players on the East Coast of Florida. That's for sure. Yeah, but I have a theory. I, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I have a theory. It's not. I don't know if it works, but it's a theory, and I feel really good about it. We could talk uh, after uh, after after we get off. Yeah, if it comes yeah. to fruition, we're gonna need a clip of that and like a whole one-page article about what you were thinking, how you executed it, and then we're, we'll publish it everywhere. Yeah, that'll be that'll be your career, uh, the end of your career, big like masterpiece, right? You'll send it to Volleyball Mag. We'll get it all blown out. Because um, by the transitive property, you'll be an Olympic gold medalist at that point. 
right? They oh yeah, of course, yeah. And, yeah. And, so you, and then you beat them, that's, throws exactly, you right yeah. All you need is one set and they're like, look, it worked. <laughs> exactly, yeah, but you see that speed getting going, right? I mean, have you thought about changing up? Has your offense changed at all, right? Are you trying to speed things up or move things around? How has that part of the game evolved? So for me, actually, I've always run this. I always uh, have ran a dynamic offense, but just like I mentioned, right, when you run a dynamic offense, you really have to practice with someone because, you know, like for me, I don't have a problem running a, a tempo set. I don't have a problem running a shoot set to the pin, a back set, right? Um, but when you don't practice with some, like with Zahn, we ran a lot of that stuff every now and then, maybe not to the point where it is today because the game wasn't there, right? But so we ran a lot of quicks, a lot of push to the pin, right? The, the problem is, you know, if you don't have that practice, it's really hard to find that hitting window for the hitter consistently knowing, oh, I know they love it here. And at that level, everybody hand sets so well, right? You can really put it where they want. So it's a matter of getting a couple of practices to kind of find what that person likes. And Dylan, he, he's coached you guys quite a bit, and we had him on the podcast. Great podcast, great guy. Love to see what he's doing down there. Um, but on top of that, like when he's in your box coaching, what are you looking at or what are you looking for from a coach? How do you express what you want out of a coach? I know we talk about it with our athletes all the time. Like, just tell us what you need. We'll do it for you. But it's part of that. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, for me, I'm a, I'm a very simple guy, very open to advice, opinion, right? Because, um, you know, obviously it's something that's not working and we're losing, right? An extra set of eyes can either A, reaffirm going, oh, I was thinking that too, right? Or B, go, okay, I'll make that change, right? I'm never, um, at least my personality, it's never something where a coach will tell me something and I'll go, no, 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 right? Because for the most part, most coaches are pretty understanding and they're like, hey, how do you guys feel about doing this? Like, kind of portraying the option for me i'm someone that likes um you know um i'm a numbers guy so kind of going like hey the last six balls you've sided out have been you know hard line right whether it's off the block or beating the blocker down the line so start mixing some angles or keep it going until you get later in the game but understand that they're setting you up to continue hitting line your ankles wide open right like that's something like for me or vice versa like hey this player has been signing on most of the percentage hitting seam and angle. So maybe don't hug the line too much on defense and then maybe take a, give them up, give up a little bit of that line so you can take that bigger percentage of the court. So I, I'm pretty simple when it comes to, to that. But for me, I'm, I'm a numbers and like percentage guy. And you seem to remember quite a bit that goes on on the court. You're, you're thinking six, seven plays back. Do you train your memory at all? Um, yeah, so for me, when I practice, um, I try to train my memory, right? Uh, and then obviously on the little phone, you do some memory games, but it's nothing like super hardcore, like, you know, um, like some of uh, these organizations, like an MLB or anything like that. But yes, um, at practices, I really train, especially when it's game day, right? And I try to tell my athletes as well, it's like, you know, every player is going to have a different style of game, right? And sometimes... This practice, their cut shot is on fire. Sometimes this practice, they're hitting that deep seam really, really well off the block. And so you, it's about making those small adjustments in time where you're making them uncomfortable going, okay, so let's say we play the 21 up until the tech. 
they've been beating me off of my outside hand, right? Going off the block or getting tooled or it's blocking going over, but going out of bounds. So do I give the adjustment of hugging more line so it lands inside the court? Or do I give the adjustment of maybe stepping a little seam and having them risk hitting that ball out of bounds and making that decision one way or another, making that decision and counting how many times if I do my job correctly or even as a defender, right, where you line up um, to see the result. And then for a short window, do I stick with that result or do I change it? And then just continuing remembering what they like and where we serve them, right? Because I think that's also huge. Where you serve a player, they typically are a little bit more comfortable um, attacking from a certain spot than the other, which sometimes I think as athletes, even myself, I'm guilty. We just get lazy on just like serving the ball to a player instead of going, no, let's serve them short right shoulder and not necessarily to get an ace, but just to get them to lean forward to reset on that approach and maybe he has to rush on his last few steps. So definitely try to remember as much as possible is key. Yeah. And one more question to go along with that is like you talk about those in-game adjustments and when when you're making them and you're almost giving up points kind of like Todd Rogers was doing against Brazil um, to set them up. When is when is the chess game almost over, and when do you have to hit the gas pedal in your mind, or is it different game to game to game? Ooh, that's a great question. That's a great question. When do you hit the gas pedal? So it depends the caliber of team you're playing and how they're playing currently at that moment. Um, what does that mean? If you're playing a team, I mean, Atlanta, we had a, we had a tough draw. It was two good teams. But if you're playing a team like the Taylors, right, we played on, I think it was 21-17, 21-17, right, that's a team where the gas pedal has to be a little bit earlier because you know a team like that is most likely to make unforced errors unless they're having a bad game with forced errors, right? Um, so, like, uh, Taylor Sander, he was missing a lot of serves against us. I don't know if it was a confinement of the court, smaller space, serving space, right? But he was missing a lot of serves. And uh, we were serving a little bit more consistent, not necessarily crushing the serves, but more consistent enough, but pressure, consistent side-out pressure, right? So he was bailing us out in that aspect. So we knew that if we wanted to stay competitive, we had to press that gas pedal a lot sooner because even though they're missing, he's gonna he's, he's a guy that loves to go for it, right? Live and die with that top spin, right? So if he catches fire and we push that gas pedal too late, we're done. We're getting smoked, right? But if we push it early enough, we can stay hanging there in the game because they're less likely to make unforced error. Now, when you're playing a team, um, and like I said, it depends on how they're playing a team that's a little bit less experienced, right? And maybe a little less skilled and everybody's pretty even. Um, that's where you can rely on maybe going a little bit later and, and saving it for later in the game just because, you know, both teams, um, depending on the caliber as well, right? Both teams are at the same level. You can kind of go, okay, all four players are less likely to have high, uh, less likely to have a high error rate. Let me save it later. But if you know your team is not playing well and you've got a lot of errors on your side, then you have to just turn it on and make those switches earlier, which kind of shows your hand. But you got to take a set at some point and then come up with a different strategy after that. We've talked a, a great amount about you know your career and obviously the way you see the game, which has been super successful. How do you see, you know, NCAA beach right now? So you're, you're coaching the next level of college beach players. What's your viewpoint of the game as somebody that's played at a high level and is now coaching the group that's going to be college beach volleyballers? Oh, my goodness. The, the, 
the level that right before COVID, going into COVID, and even a little bit before COVID, just the level has changed just dramatically where, uh, you know, uh, what I see the biggest, um, you know, that impresses me is girls committing a lot younger to the beach game, right? But also a lot of, a lot, a lot of hand setting, right? Um, which I think is huge, huge. So for all the juniors out there, you got to hand set. You want to play at that next level, you better bring out those hands, get your feet to the ball, practice good footwork, getting under it, right? And then also getting strong enough to really cover distance. But for me, what I see in the longer term is I see actually one of my players showed me a clip and I was like, please don't show me a bad clip. And it was actually really well. She actually jump set in the tournament this past weekend. And I said, look, you're jump setting and your blocker's not biting with you. I don't want to hear it. And surprisingly enough, the blocker did bite and the block goes up in the air. She said her partner, partner comes in and hits it down. Okay, so if the girls are trying that now, I see that soon approaching in the girls' game, and they'll be here before you know it. Obviously, you have to condition for it. You have to get strong enough to be able to do that the whole game. But for me, I see that um, in the NCAA game, I see that's the next step. Because at first, it was, okay, taller girls are coming to the beach. Then it was, okay, girls are committing a lot sooner. Then it was, oh, wow, everybody's starting a hand set. The rest are letting a couple more hands go because everybody was too scared at first, especially junior tournaments. Like, there's even junior tournaments where it's like, hey, 12 and 14, we're not calling hands, so just set your hearts out, right? Um, and then now more girls are getting comfortable hand setting. And I think the next step for the girls is, honestly, uh, jump sets and two balls. Jump sets and two balls. And the junior level, obviously, <clears throat> A lot of families don't want to be under ball to ball and it's kind of like, hey, I get it. Like, you know, it's a quote unquote dirty way to win. But, you know, they're 12, they're 14, they, they want to win. But the overhand two ball showing with your hands and it's kind of just going over. I think that's the next step because, you know, the girls watch the men, the men watch the girls and they just kind of synergize. And I think, I think that's where the next levels are mean. You start to see um melissa and brandy from uh, the canada team you started to see a little bit of that hey let me put you up on two or pass wide right and then you set me to the pin you're starting to you're starting to see that a little bit more so i'm curious to see how the olympics because i think everybody's going to obviously tune into that I'm curious to see if there's any women's team going to start implementing that or working on that because that's that's where i see it i mean we train our girls and set everything right get your feet don't bump it unless you're diving for the ball um but also we've been working on two balls as well because spreading out the offense is, uh, it's, it's tough. It's very tough to defend. Yeah. I think you'll, you'll see uh, maybe a little upgrade uptick in uh, service pressure as well. I mean, you notice in the NCAA tournament the last couple of years, the champions, the top out of the top three pairs, the top two pairs, you know, you get eight out of 12 people ripping topspin serves. Um, and I think that's the perfect antithesis for the jump set, right? The the reason it's survived so long, I think, on the FIVB between Oman and Helvig and Andy and Miles has been, um, while the Mikasa is probably harder to pass, it's also a lot harder to serve. So you have a higher likelihood of being in system, um, especially on a men's net. Uh, I'd say women's side, like the two ball is, is going to make a big push, especially with like Brandy and Mel. Um, you might see it with Stom and Schoon from the Netherlands if they can – um, kind of figure out their they've got some wonkiness going on right now but 
there's going to be some really good teams that are going to put it up there and, and make a show of it. So it should be fun to watch. Final question for you. We got one of your club players on our team. Who's your favorite club player you've ever coached? Just kidding. Don't answer that. Do not answer that. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's been great having you on the show, Dave. And um, it, it's great learning everything that you've uh, gotten or all the knowledge that you've taken away from the game and kind of your journey into the volleyball game. So thank you for joining us. No, thank, thank you guys uh, for having me. You know, I really, uh, really appreciate um, some really, really great questions. And, you know, when I text you guys, I was like, yeah, ask away whatever you guys want to know. I'm pretty much uh, an open book. I, I don't have an issue sharing because I think, you know, in, in, in my personal experience, sharing with the girls is just going to make them better, faster, right? And then you get to go, wow, I was a part of history where, you know, we were pushing the girls, like, hey, do this, because that's where the next level of the sport's going to be. Um, but, you know, let's uh, let's turn the tables a little bit. Um, I have a question for you guys. So, um, yeah, 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 I have a question. Don't think you guys are going to get off the hook here. So my question to you guys is, I heard a rumor that you guys were starting a TikTok page and going to do some TikTok dances for coaches on the beat. And you're going to get coaches dancing on these TikTok platforms. I don't know where you heard that, but that did not come out of my mouth. Yeah, I, I can't say you met a less TikTok savvy person than me. Yeah. Maybe maybe it was the Christy episode where she talked about her dancing and her TikToks. Yeah, yeah. I heard Tex got a great TikTok page. If you want to go, uh, does PCA have a TikTok page? Can we promote that? We do not, but we have a YouTube page. But I, I'm just I'm relaying what the people want. You got to give the people what they want. You got to <laughs> give the people what they want. That's a fair point. We'll uh, we'll workshop in the in the uh, in the, the the office here, and we'll see if we can't. Uh, come up with a way to pull this off. I, I love the creativity of the idea. This is why beach volleyball people are the best, right? Because nobody is better at promoting themselves than a beach athlete. Because you're grinding out there, right? Sponsors, you're like, hey, let me let me sell you on me. Here's why you should give Dave Palm 10 grand a year to, to travel around beaches of America. Um, so yeah, that's that's a good idea. I mean, I'll talk to Michael. He's the, he's the boring one. He's the yeah. no guy in the house. I'm always the yes guy. Think about it when you're streaming, you could take talk live and people could send you roses and coins, you know, for having a, you know, a great, uh, a great podcast. Could make some money and, uh, and get out of coaching. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't think that's on the, on the dock anytime soon, but Dave, thanks so much for coming on, man. Best of luck. Uh, you got a couple more AVPs this year. Um, no, not playing Chicago. Uh, I think that's it. Uh, Laguna, um, is, it's a tough trip because it's just a, it's a tour event. All the points, not money, but I hear rumors that I have money. So in this case, they do. I might go, but outside of that, that's about it. So you know, kind of, we'll, I'm waiting a couple more weeks to see if my season's over to fully declare it and then start off-season training, right, um, for next year. But but we'll see because uh, rumor has it, you know, um, some stuff's happening in the background. So so I don't know what that means, but I guess we'll find out. And then one last question. Um, you know, for the juniors out there watching as coaches, what would you say is the biggest value a junior athlete can bring to you college coaches when entering college? 
Michael, you wanna you wanna get us going here? Or you, I can start it off. Um, what I always ask for is their true personality. Uh, I want to get to know them because this is not just a feeling out process just for us. Um, like yes, we're gonna make a decision based off of the team that we want to build or continue in a way, but it's also a way for them to get to know us uh, or see if we're the right fit. And if your your mind's not open and you're not being your true self, you're going into it like an interview type way, you can always give off those wrong vibes. And then you come in your freshman year and it can go the complete wrong direction for you. Um, so my biggest thing is when juniors come in or when I'm getting emails, phone calls, anything, I ask them just to be completely themselves. And on my first phone call, I don't talk anything about volleyball. Until we get to their questions, which are mostly always centered around volleyball, I only talk about them and hobbies and what they like. My favorite question I like to ask is, what pets do you have? And if they have more than one, I always ask them which one their favorite is. Um, so just kind of getting to know them, that that is the biggest value I see in the recruiting process from that young age. Yeah. And, and I mean, mine's not too dissimilar, right? I think. For me, it's passion about the program. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not uh, I'm not naive to the fact that pretty much nobody had heard of Southeastern Louisiana before they probably got started recruiting, getting recruited by them. Um, and, you know, that's okay, right? I get it. But once we're in that recruiting process, right, if you're not excited about where you're getting ready to go um, or where you, you know, if you don't have a passion for like, I want to go to that school, um, or I want to go play in that program, right, then let us know that. Like, that's okay. It, it's better to uh, – I told the story on here once, right, but I had a girl that told me her dream school was South Carolina. And uh, and I said, great, I'm not going to – we're not going to be able to offer you until you talk to South Carolina and, you know, see if you like that university. Um, she's going there in 2024. So <laughs> that's a bad, bad recruiting job by me, but also <laughs> – uh, I think RJ and Moritz still owe me. So, you know, hey, we'll, we'll there take you go. It. But if you're not excited, right, if this isn't a place that, you know, you're fired up about and ready to go be a part of, then you're not going to like it here. And that's like Michael said, that's going to be the first problem that you have on campus is you feel like you don't belong. So I want you to be excited and happy. Dang, first time we got interviewed other than us asking yeah, us questions. Yeah, I was, I was going to close this off. I was like, well, thanks for coming to the podcast, guys. <laughs> No. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for uh, creating a very unique spin to your pod. That was awesome, man. Very fun first club coach. I'm not sure we'll have another great club coach like you, but we'll give it a go, I'm sure, at some point. Ooh, I mean, I don't know. You, you get uh, Holly McPeak there. She uh, she gave us the, the rundown in Paul Richard's Club in June. So she uh, has a lot of good girls out there. I was yeah, yeah, she does. Well, maybe Holly and uh, and Fenoy's helping her with, and Barb yeah. is helping her with that. Yeah, yeah, that could be a fun Shoot, all three of those guys on a podcast? Michael and I might have to just sit back and not ask any questions. <laughs>